Hello legends and welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub as always is brought to you by Cub, the Club of United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. At Cub, we say we're your business family because that's exactly what we are. Today, we're catching up with Cub member Darren Woolley. Darren is the CEO of Trinity P3, a global marketing management consultancy firm that has offices in places like London, New York, Zurich, Singapore, and of course, Sydney. Darren started the company 20 years ago. Before that, he was actually a scientist, which gives him an incredible uh, approach to his marketing methods. He's a leader in the marketing industry, and we discussed tons of awesome stuff, such as how to be customer-centric in your marketing, as well as your service, how to be constantly innovating and pivoting in the current environment. Darren and I had a brilliant conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I have no doubt you are going to too. So enjoy the show. And we're live. Welcome to the show, Darren. How are you, mate? I'm really well, Daniel. Thank you. It's very exciting to have a fellow podcaster on the show too because uh, it feels weird to say that. I just started podcasting. You've been podcasting for a lot longer than I have. When when did you say you started? We started in uh, July 2015. So you must have – and it's a weekly episode you have. Weekly episodes. Apart from uh, the holiday period, we take a holiday. Okay. And what's the podcast called? Managing Marketing. Okay. So our listeners should go check out Managing Marketing. And where, where can they find it? Well, it's, uh, you know, it's everywhere. It's on Spotify. It's on uh, SoundCloud. It's on iTunes. And, and you, so you've got, you must have hundreds of episodes available. Yeah, literally hundreds. And, and it's all things through marketing or, or what can people expect to find there? Yeah, it's conversations with uh, people working in marketing, all, all different things. You know, there's media, there's uh, advertising. You know, it basically covers the full gamut of uh, marketing issues. Amazing. And today um, I'm basically going to be asking you uh, a bunch of stuff uh, and trying to extract some of your incredible knowledge from your brain and straight into mine and to the the, the ears of our listeners. Um, so I know we've prepared a little bit of a, a prep sheet and, and that type of thing, and I'm going to try my best to stick to that, but we'll see where the conversation goes. But Darren, I actually don't know, how much, how long have you been a member for? Only uh, just over a year. I joined over a year in now? June, June last year. Amazing. I see you just renewed. Good on you. You're obviously incredibly intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you know, I see the value. So why yes. wouldn't you invest in value? Yeah, good. I'm so happy to hear that. And just because I don't know that much about you, uh, your beginnings and where you grew up. I, I, knew, I know you're the, you started, you're, you're the founder and CEO of Trinity P3, which is a managing consultancy firm um, specializing in marketing. That's right. And so yep. can, can you just uh, tell us a bit more about Trinity P3? Well, uh, the company itself was started because I was working as creative director at a small agency called J. Walter Thompson in Melbourne. And I could see that there was a gap in the marketplace. And that is a gap for someone to be totally independent for both marketers and their suppliers around ways of working together to deliver better results, better performance, better productivity. And so uh, it was really a matter of, you know, if I was going to commit to this, I had to get out there and put back myself and put, uh, you know, the money where my mouth was about the fact that people can do marketing a lot better than they are. And But why, is it, why was there a need for an independent, I guess, agency like yourself to come into – because I know you work with very large 
uh, companies and, and they have huge marketing spends. Is that more so so the CMO there or the CEO has, uh, I guess, a second point of view? Kind of like if you go to the doctor and you're a bit sick, you don't like what one doctor says, you get a second opinion just in case? Well, I think a lot of CEOs and CFOs see marketing as a cost item mm-hmm. on the balance sheet, you know, or on the P&L. And um, that a lot of marketers are getting advice from people that are selling them services. Like advertising agencies are selling advertising, media agencies are selling media, ad tech companies are, t- are selling a, a technology solution. Mm-hmm. Everyone that surrounds them is t- selling them something. There's no one there that's actually sitting there saying independently, you know what, here's what you want to achieve and here's some options for you as the way to achieve it. So to be independent is really important to us because we're only there to drive improved performance. We're not there to sell something. Yeah, because you're actually independent of the actual organisation that's doing the marketing, but you're also independent of the one selling the the marketing um, uh, services. Absolutely. Which gives you that you can choose what's best for the company, not sell whatever your Yeah, and in fact, one of the things, is. Dan, Daniel, one of the things that we uh, always do is give people options because there's no one solution. See, marketing, like business, is incredibly complex. And anyone that comes in and says, you must do this, right, is actually limiting the opportunities. What we do is we sit down we really get an understanding of what they're trying to achieve, the organisation, and how marketing is playing a role in that. And then we'll say to them, here are the barriers, here are the challenges that you have. Now, here's a number of different ways you can solve those. Let's talk through what the financial implications and the business implications are going to be so that we can optimise that and deliver results for the business. And, and what year did the company start or did you start it? Well, I started it in January two, uh, 2000. You know, it was a dot-com business. Yeah, <laughs> yes. So it's 20 years now. Yeah, yeah, 20 and, years this year. And you got offers, are you going to have a bit of, oh, you can't really have much of a 20-year celebration, can you? Well, we had a cake <laughs> in January, so it was prior to the lockdown. Oh, good. And and you've now got offices in, um, see if I remember this, Singapore, London, New York. Yep. Um, Sydney. Zurich and, and Sydney. S- yeah, that's it. Incre- and is that because you work with international organisations or how did that how did that happen? How well, long did it take you to open your first outside of Australia office? That was 2007 in Singapore and Hong Kong. The Hong Kong office has since closed. In fact, I opened the week of the global financial crisis. In Singapore? So, yeah. yeah. So that was uh, great moments in poor timing. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I can, you probably got a couple of good deals though when you, when you were there <laughs> on your rents and things. And, and so who are your clients? What do you work with and, and what do you do for them? So just to paint me a better picture, uh, I'm a – What's an example of a company that you'd work with? Well, look, uh, all the major banks we okay. work with. Uh, I'm, I'm one of the major banks. Yeah. I've got my marketing department and uh, I just met with Darren Woolley from Trinity P3. And uh, how does that work from there? Okay. So, you know, let's take the current crisis that we're going through with the pandemic. Um, the marketers and the business decide that they need to be more customer-centric. They've been working on a strategy to put customer at the centre of the business. And what they suddenly realise is that the marketing department is actually not designed or structured to have customer first. That what they're really doing is their services or products first. You know, there's a credit card department, there's the home loans department, there's the 
investment department. You know, th this marketing has become very much a services, fact, what we call a factory out view. And they're saying, well, we want to become more customer centric. How do we structure ourselves to do that? One of the things that we do is to come in and start redesigning the way marketing can be structured so that it actually puts the customer journey as the basis of that. Then we'll align all of the external suppliers. Now, that's a big challenge. On the other side of the, uh, the coin, we might get a very small thing. We've got a media agency or a creative agency. We feel we're paying them too much. They're underperforming. They're not fast enough. We'll come in and diagnose that as well. So we can do big strategic projects or smaller sort of operational projects. And, and the goal is just to have better performing marketing. Yeah, better performing, more productive because marketing is an investment. So you want to make sure that every dollar that's going into marketing is actually performing. Really, and I know one of the topics we're going to discuss is how to best market, how to basically structure your marketing, as you said, to be customer centric. But before we do, uh, I'd love a bit of background on you. How you, you know, where you're born, how you, where you grow up. You're a scientist. Uh, you mentioned before this. Paint me a bit of a picture. Okay, so uh, born in Victoria in mm -hmm. a country town. Uh, spent most of my childhood and teenage years down on the Mornington Peninsula uh, by the sea. Beautiful place. Uh, ended up uh, doing a science course because all the way through high school I was really good at science and maths. So I never thought of being a, uh, a, you know, a copywriter or an you know, working in advertising because I think my uh, year 12 English teacher said, whatever you do, Darren, don't go into a profession that you have to write because <laughs> I was so atrociously bad at spelling and grammar. So I went into sciences and ended up working at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne in medical research at a place called the Muscle Unit. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, this is my career. I've become a scientist. Except that in Australia, science doesn't offer a real career path. Unless you go back and do a PhD or further studies, you're really not going to progress much beyond, you know, just doing the same thing for the rest of your life. That's interesting. Why, why is that? I think... Uh, As opposed to other countries, I guess. Well, in other countries, there's so many more opportunities. Most research in Australia is either government-funded or, you know, even the pharmaceutical companies in this country don't do a lot of research. Most of the research is in Europe or the US. And then we take that, that, that research and apply it. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, Australia is not a R&D country by and large because it's not the sort of place. I mean, there are companies that are doing it now and the government supports R&D. But most of the R&D in this country is not medical, it's technology. Yeah. So, you know, this for a medical scientist, it wasn't a big opportunity. From that, I fell into advertising and became a copywriter and ended up working in advertising. So going from science, which is very left brain, uh, to advertising creative, which is very right brain, was quite a shift at the age of, I think I was 26 at the time. And did you find, did you find that difficult or did you, which, which, which brain of, uh, which side of your brain works better, you reckon, the left or the right? Because they say normally people are either left or right. 
Yeah, I've done, I've done that study. I've done the quiz and I'm both. I'm a, I'm a balanced left-right brain. So in many ways, 15 years in advertising proved to me I was never going to be one of the great creative people. Mm-hmm. But likewise, uh, six years in science proved to me I was never going to be a great scientist either. So I think I probably ended up with a balance that meant I'd never be great at either of them. But it's quite interesting then because it made you very good at improving marketing because while you – I guess, like you said, you weren't the greatest creative. You were creative. You did have a. You could do that, but you also were very analytical and were therefore able to analyze uh, businesses, marketing, uh, the structures, the systems, the data, uh, and and uh, know how to put better creative to to create better data. Did yeah, you Dan- say that's what happened? Yeah, Daniel, you're absolutely right. I mean, I basically created a business yeah. that plays to my strengths. Mm. You know, I understand creative, and I can appreciate it. But I also have a strong analytical approach, which means that, you know, I could bring the two together. And one of the big hurdles in the first 10 years of the business was actually trying to convince marketers that you can actually analyse marketing or agencies that you could analyse advertising. You know, now it's become accepted because data has become such a big part of marketing and advertising today. But, you know, you've got to remember back in 2000, it was still early days. It wasn't. It was not like that back then, was it? No, it was very much opinion driven, and whoever had the loudest voice or the biggest ego often dominated. Re- so, so you, it was a bit of a competitive advantage for you having that scientific analytical background back then, because data wasn't such a big thing in marketing. And yeah. so, just another interesting topic: um, were you conscious that uh, of your decision that you were going to start a business? that was complementary to your, I guess, unique double-sided brain skill set or was it something that you think just kind of happened naturally because that's what, that's what you're capable of doing? No, I, I was very aware of playing to my strengths because as a creative person I, I ended up uh, president of the Melbourne Advertising and Design Club and I was really good at strategizing and executing from a very business perspective for that club. Now, this is a club that's full of creative people and fantastic creative people. But they, they without what's called account management, they really struggled with actually pulling that together often. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people would call me the suit of creativity. And so when I started the business, when I was designing the business, that was exactly the positioning I wanted. I wanted to be an analytical person in a creative domain. I love that. And since COVID happened, I mean, I know you've got a very good finger on the pulse of marketing as a whole, uh, I guess globally, but let's just use Australia for now. What trends have you seen happen um, in marketing departments across the country uh, since COVID happened? Okay, so a lot of people talk about a new normal. Mm-hmm. I actually believe that all COVID has done is accelerated the trends we already saw. You know, things that may have taken a decade before are happening in months. And so a well, lot... What type of things do you Okay, mean? so the first is uh, e-commerce. Suddenly retailers that have been dragging their heels for years and years around committing to e-commerce, as everyone's got a, uh, you know, click and collect. Yeah, they yeah. were kicked up the butt, say, hey, get on it. Well, and they had to. See, it's interesting how, uh, you know, the necessity is driving this change. 
uh, the fact that suddenly companies are now talking about, oh, we really do need to be more customer-centric. We need to be understanding and facilitating the customer journey, whereas before everyone was talking about it, but it was really hard to make those changes. So I think what we're seeing is an acceleration of the things people have been talking about, but then the fact that we're working remotely, that consumers are not wanting to expose themselves, you know, going into stores as much and things like that, is really driving these changes. And companies are starting to say to themselves, how can we be more customer-centric? Whereas before they were asking that question and not coming up with a lot of answers. How would you define, though, being more customer-centric? Or what would you define being customer-centric? Okay, so too many organisations get attached to what they do before they actually think about who they're doing it for and how that person wants it done. So would that be like Cub selling what our service rather than selling how this service is going to benefit our member or potential member? Well, see, yeah, and, and I have to say, Cub has been unbelievable during this time in responding to what your members want. You know, the quick move to taking all of the events online, you know, finding new ways of adding value, whereas there have been a lot of organisations that really struggled with that. But I'll give you a, a, a probably more tangible example, which is uh, take insurance or financial services. There's not a lot of innovation in the mainstream brands around what customers want. What they're inclined to do is just copy each other. You know, someone brings out a new credit card, everyone's got the same credit card. They bring out a new home loan product, everyone's got it. Whereas, you know, we're seeing the fintechs starting up and they're trying, but they don't have the volume, they don't have the, the mass and the resources to do it. But they're often built out of not what we can do technologically or not what everyone else is doing, but what does the consumer want? To me, that's true customer centricity is really getting to know your customer so well that you can start predicting what they want and how they're going to behave before they even know it. And so then what's the process so that one would go through or a business owner would go or a business would go through in order to become more customer-centric? So you have to understand your customers more. How do you do that? Well, rather than think of your business as delivering certain products or services, what you've got to do is take a consumer view back on yourself and start to say, what's the value proposition? Why are customers coming to us for these services? And how can we facilitate that, make it easier for them, make it uh, more enjoyable? You know, this is what customer centricity is about, is rather than make customers jump through our hoops, how do we make it from their perspective just so much easier to do? And so would that involve doing more catch-ups with customers? Would, would it involve think groups? Uh, at Cub, we normally will catch up with like a lot, a lot of the members that joined this year. Uh, a lot of them have only experienced a predominantly digital experience, uh, which is obviously not the full Cub experience. Um, and I've been actually catching up with all of them through Zoom, just saying, hey, how is it? How's your experience been thus far? How can we make it better? Is that type of stuff you're talking about yeah. to figure it out? Look, but, but it's also an essential understanding of what your business was about. See, Cub could have defined itself as we're an event place. 
that we only roll, hold events. We happen to have clubhouses and we have to bring people into the clubhouses to have events. We go to restaurants to have events. If you think of yourself as an event-only organisation, but then you, I don't think you think of yourself as no, that because the actual real estate is more just a place for people to network and share ideas. To build valuable relationships, which is the purpose of what we do. Right. So then when you can't have face-to-face events, you went, okay, how do we build purposeful relationships in a world where people can't meet face-to-face? Well, we'll move it into virtual world, right? And so you translated the same purpose. I think too often the way organisations experience or see the world is from what they do rather than what's the value proposition for their customers and clients. Well, the purpose of why they do it. For example, if you, to use Cubs' purpose to build valuable relationships, oh, yeah, we can do that in the clubhouse, we can do that in person, but we can also do that in the digital world. So really maybe should a lot of businesses be thinking right now, okay, what really do we provide? Yeah. You know, what do we provide? Is it a sense of belonging as, as Cub may be, is it whatever it may be, and how can we deliver what, what we provide still in a slightly more digital world so in the case of trinity p3 Mm. you know p3 stands for helping people achieve commercial purpose through the creative process so we define the scope of where we operate Mm -hmm. not how we operate just the scope helping people achieve commercial purpose through creative process trinity is the three groups of people that we deal with we deal with marketers we deal with their finance and management teams and we deal with the external suppliers. So that's the trinity. What we do is we improve the productivity and performance of every organisation that we deal with. That's what we do. How we do it will constantly evolve just as marketing evolves and the challenges that those organisations are facing evolve. So 20 years ago when we started, it was much simpler or straightforward. Today, it's so much more complex. You know, when we're talking about things like... uh, programmatic buying and data management and customer privacy and ad tech platforms and you know so we have to be true to our purpose but constantly evolve and rethink the way we execute that so that it adds value to our customers so obviously a lot of business had had to act really fast to serve customers just quickly it was like oh shit the world shut down how do we serve everyone that's paid us and how do we keep selling right so we still need a service so there was like a short-term view but do you think also now that we've had a bit more time to to sit on it we should be saying okay well this has already sent us into that digital direction perhaps can we start looking at creating uh, an also fully ultimate digital experience as well for our customers whether that be this whether that be all we do whether it be an addition onto what what we already do but digital means you can sell everywhere. So should a lot of businesses start using this as, okay, well, we, you know, we've kind of passed the short-term digital digitalization of our business. Let's start strategizing for a more long-term uh, digitalization. And how can this benefit us? How can we actually make more sales, have a bigger market because we're selling digitally? Is that uh, – Daniel, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and this is why I talk about this being an acceleration of trend rather than a disruption, you know. That the short-term uh, ways of adapting is just an acceleration of coping with the, what, what the world's serving up. Mm-hmm. But this is an absolute platform to actually 
embrace the change that they've already done and take that forward. Mm. You know, I mean, there's some short-term things like, uh, you know, so many of the big organisations, most of the alcohol producers have gone into producing hand sanitizer. Yeah. Yeah. That's a short-term. But the long-term thing is customers are going to be looking for more uh, digital experiences. They're going to transact in a more digital way. They're going to want things delivered in real time not two or three days or a week. You know, all of these things are the opportunities going forward. So I think, you know, that you need to think about your customer and where they're going. So while some people say it's the new norm, it's actually just we've accelerated where cu- customers' expectations are going. We've accelerated what's already was already kind of happening. Is exactly. A big digital jump forwards. Yeah. But you're also right in that digital is global. There are no boundaries anymore. Mm. You know, if you're an Australian company, you can be doing business in any part of the world. You know, the the reason you asked earlier, the, why do we have offices everywhere? Well, it's because you know, we've used digital as a way of promoting our expertise. You know, through uh, regular you know, th- three times a week, we write thought leading articles. We share. We do the. I love podcast. your articles on LinkedIn as well. Thank you. Um, yeah, and, and that doesn't have any boundaries because we get a global audience. The thing is that uh, from a European and US perspective, they go, oh, you're in Sydney, Australia? You know? So having a presence in those markets just gives them a level of comfort. Whether that will change through this is yet to be seen. So it's like social proof in a sense. Kind of like, hey, we're in this country. We're, we're here too. And I guess... How have you – so when you are working with your clients in this new um, more digital world of marketing or whatever it may be, uh, you, you ma- you're making them more customer-centric. Um, uh, how are you changing where the spend is going? Are you, are you doing more spend on lead generation uh, or are you focusing more spend on uh, brand building and just being present in the, in the face of the customer? How are you, uh, I guess – advising big companies to to do what yeah so it depends and i know that's such a consultant cliche it depends right but it really depends on where the business is at in its maturity it depends where the brands are at you know have they had huge support do they need more support do we need to focus do we need to milk the equity in the brand to get short-term sales or do we need to rebuild the brand because we've milked the equity out of it to the point that, you know, consumers now devalue it. One of the things that cracks me up is the number of online ads for brands that I've never heard of and the first thing they tell me is 50% off. Well, you know, if I don't even know what your product is, what it stands for, telling me that it's now half price is actually um, pointless. So build your awareness first, then turn that into sales. And a good way to build awareness would be an, an example of what? Just uh, telling the brand story or? Creating opportunities for your customer, existing customers to tell your stories, you know. Uh, creating so you get op- like success stories from your for, for us, from so- the members and then I guess telling that story to potentials? Yeah, and social sharing, you know, for your, particularly for Cub, absolutely, it should be turning all of your members into advocates for Cub. 
Now, I know people say, of course, you know, you do an NPS score and, or an NPS survey and you say, how likely are you to recommend CUB to uh, a colleague or friend? And they'll say nine or ten. But how easy are you making that? To actually do so. Yeah, to do so. Yeah. yeah. How do you turn it into one click to the recommend CUB to yeah. the right sort of people? And this is customer centricity because the, the behaviour you want you need to then make it as simple as possible for your members to actually do that. And that's actually harder, I reckon, than even making your clients love you and your and your thing. There's one thing making them love you and, and doing an amazing job, but it's also another thing, systemizing or making it so easy for them to promote you. Yeah, that's right. You know what I mean? That, that's, that's not that easy and to, to, to systemize as well, but also to systemize like businesses should really systemize the way of which they retru- um, they obtain success stories from their customers. Of course. Uh, you'd say yes? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it- especially where it's an experienced brand. Mm. So you're an experienced brand. Yeah, in some ways we're an experienced brand. Most brands are increasingly about experience. By experienced brand you mean what? The, the value comes from experiencing the yeah. brand. Like I buy a product... There's only a couple of times I get some experience from it. One is when I buy it. Two is if it's delivered to me when I unbox it. And then after that, it's usually a downhill run, mm-hmm. you know, because all the expectation is up front. And then, oh, yeah, I've got this, I've got that, you know, I'm just using it. Whereas every day an experienced brand has to reinforce the value of being in that relationship. Because you're delivering that experience now, continued continued experience. You're saying, yeah, there's always opportunities to experience the brand, right? Whereas normally um, most uh, product brands, as I said, the two things are when I buy it, when I unbox it, and then third one is usually when I'm sending it back for repair. Yeah, and that's <laughs> and that's and that's so that's what you say is not an experience brand. Yeah, well, it's a limited experience. It's limited experience. There's only a limited number of points in the relationship that I can influence. Mm -hmm. Whereas a brand like Cub, you know, there is, uh, whether they're going onto a website, they're uh, connecting to people on LinkedIn that are other Cub members. So I'd say to you that's one of the things I find interesting is, you know, LinkedIn is a really powerful professional network. Mm. It's got its critics but... You know, when someone connects to me, one of the things or wants to sends me an invite, one of the things I look for is what's our point of connection? Are they cup members, for mm. instance? Do they work in the marketing industry? You know, what is the purpose of connecting with this? And and so I think they're all things that enhance the value and the experience of the cup membership. And so a business owner should be, particularly right now, obviously you said being more customer centric in their marketing, but perhaps they should also relook at the brand experience and say, how can we make this experience more relevant to the current things that our customers are going through, which I guess is already custom. That is what custom being more customer centric is, isn't it? So That's right. in your marketing, but also in your experience. So, your- so the thing I'd say is that too many people think of marketing as advertising or promotions or comms. What we're talking about is real marketing where we're talking about the customer, their experience of the brand, their experience of the business. You know, because what, you know, the example for Cub 
is that as the CEO, you would need to then make operational changes to become more customer-centric, mm. to make the customer experience more lively. That's not something your marketing person could do. They could recommend it, but it's still going to become an operational or business decision to actually do that. And that's why customer centricity has to exist across the whole organisation, not just in the marketing department. Marketing can tell you what they think we should do, but the CEO is going to have to back it. Yeah, it's two-sided. It's okay, well, the marketing's, yeah, exactly what you said, telling everyone that we're more customer centric, that we understand our customers and this is why you should come with us. But if the operations don't deliver that, well, then there's no second purchase. So how many brands, you know, when you think about it, there's all these brands that tell you that they're here for you, mm -hmm. our customers. And then when you want to make a complaint or find out information, you go to a website. All the there's telcos. No, yeah, there's no phone numbers. <laughs> you go through yeah. 27 pages of yeah. Q&As or, or frequently asked questions and you end up giving up. Yeah. Is that really being customer-centric? Yeah. It's, very, it's a very, I'd call it an old-school way of business perhaps and it's not the way of the future although we did have an experience with a very modern company and um, not too long ago uh, myself and laura where uh, we posted something on instagram which had absolutely no i'm fairly certain it was like a photo of us doing the podcast or something and they, they got rid of the post and we're trying to reach out to them and say, hey, what's wrong with that post? Where did it go? There's no way to contact them. You can't get onto them. Where are they? They're, you know, they're in the they're the gods of the, the clouds and you can't kind of reach them. Um, and I feel like that that was a negative experience. And, and so you immediately jumped to telcos, mm. which, you know, have a lot of uh, problems, you know, as far as customer experience goes. But you're right. You know, technology companies, social media platforms, uh, ad tech, martech in, in my space make it really hard to actually get under the skin and find out, well, what am I meant to be doing here? Why? Do you think it's because they have so many customers that if they were to handle all of the little complaints, it would just be the world's biggest... Yeah, the uh, complaints what, complaint department. department. <laughs> it would just be a too big of an expense and cost. Do you think that's why? And they've just figured out, hey, they can't reach us much cheaper and who cares? There's so many of them. Yeah, no, and, and that's part of it, you know, that they, they don't want to invest the money to actually look after their customers. They wanting they, they pay lip service to that by doing things like, oh, we'll do videos, we'll uh, give you the world's largest frequently asked question yeah. area, but they don't actually go the next step, which is solving the problem. Okay. So being customer-centric and then translate in your marketing and in your operations is absolutely crucial in a time like this. And you mentioned something before that I want to circle back to, which was how do you define marketing? So people have marketing is this, marketing is advertising, marketing is digital marketing, is fucking pamphlets. There's all different thought processes towards me. How do you define it? So for me, marketing is the, um, the strategic process of planning and implementing all of the customer interactions. So that's from advertising to call centres to, you know, social media. Every way that you interact with the customer, marketing plays a role. Okay, so that's what you would say. Marketing, is, it goes across board. It's every experience your customer has with your company is to do with marketing. And potential customer. And potential customer. But really, any, just the experience people have with your company. So it's interesting. It's called marketing 
why wouldn't it be the management of the market face of your organisation? Mm. Exactly right. So, so it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, you know big organisations that we often deal with, they, the marketing department is actually the promotions department because the only lever they can pull is advertising. They either spend more on advertising or less, more on social media, less, right? But then when it comes to the call centre, so that they do a good job. They make a nice new ad. They put it on television. They put it on YouTube. They share it on social media. And it's all about how we're here to help you. And then I call up their call centre to make a complaint and I'm put on hold. They don't solve the problem. I have to identify myself. I get told that 17 it's, being, times reco- yeah, to it's being recorded. You know, everything works against actually making it easy for me. Mm-hmm. So... The two, you know, if you've only got one lever to pull, it's not really very effective. If you actually think of marketing as that holistic approach, then you've got 20, 30 levers. Yeah, I really like that idea. And, I mean, as a scientist, and, I mean, you spoke, you spoke before uh, about being ahead of the curve in regards to the measurement and the data and analytics of, of the marketing as a whole, what were the, I guess, what were the lessons you you took from science that apply very well to business? What's the correlation? So there's a thing called the uh, scientific method, right? The scientific method says you first observe and you make notes and you you get a view of a particular ecosystem. Let's call it a business. Then you have a hypothesis. You have a hypothesis based on what you've seen to try and make sense of what you've seen. And then you set up an experiment to actually prove whether your hypothesis is right or not. Mm -hmm. And the results of that experiment, you try and replicate it to make sure it wasn't a one-off. And then you have learnt something about your business. Rather than, you know, just stopping at the hypothesis and going, oh, that must be true, I'm going to put all my money and effort into that. So this is where I see, you know, the scientific method is a great way to think about my business. I apply it to the business all the time. You know, if I've got a new service, why why do I think about introducing a new service? Because I observe a lot of conversations with different clients that they go, oh, it would be great if we could do this. So then I think, oh, maybe I could turn that into a new service. But I don't immediately run off and and, uh, pivot the whole business to that service. I'll set up an experiment. I'll put together, you know, what's it called? The minimal minimum viable product. And then I'll go to a couple of clients and test it out to see. And if they like it, I'll test it with a few more and test it with a few more. And then if I can see that there's some traction here, we'll go ahead with it. Now, to me, that's a commercial version of the scientific method. And just on the topic of of creating a new service, this is a little bit off topic, but we had this conversation the other day. When you're thinking of creating a new service, so let's say, okay, I want a new revenue stream. I'm going to create a new service for my customers. Would you create a service that is outside of the purpose of your business? For example, if our purpose at Cub is to build valuable relationships between accomplished entrepreneurs and business owners, um, and obviously we do that with our current service, but we were then going to go open a concierge service for our members, which I'm sure we could sell to them and I'm sure that we could do would you say that that's a good idea because it's an additional service, additional value for the members and could create good additional revenue? Or would you say mm, that's probably not the best idea because it's not in line with what you do as a company and it may divert your, your I guess, core? 
Okay, so um, we face this uh, over 20 years. I've faced the same question. And that is, is it within our purpose? If it isn't, then it's probably not a high priority. Is it something that's going to add value to our customers? Then I would test it to make sure it does add value. Is there a way I can bring the two together? For instance, in the case of a concierge service, mm -hmm. is it a concierge service that increasingly creates opportunities for the members to be part of that, not just in using the service but actually delivering on those services? So is it a concierge service that allows members to do things together perhaps or allows them to build value relations in some sort of way? And that way it brings it back into the core, more into the core purpose. You know, the, the, uh, one of the great things about Cub membership like is that. that there's so many members that it's very hard, you know. I mean, I think the core uh, meetings that have been held are a great way of getting to know people, but you're getting to know people sort of eight to ten at a time. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, having a concierge service that you go to and go, oh, I need someone that can do this, and the concierge says, oh, there's a member over here or here's two members that do that, you know. And it happens already by... In membership a, managers. Yeah, and, and an organic way, you know, like buying a great suit or, you know, things like that uh, already spreads around through the membership. But it could be to facilitate that and then the service becomes additional to that but still part of the, the uh, purpose. So you can look at additional services. That would be of value to your members but you want to find a way to make them more in line with your purpose as a company. That's right. You know, you need to remember that your purpose is your purpose. So the, the, you are either on purpose or you're adding value to the membership. But the sweet spot is where you do both. Yeah. And where would you find your – so let's say someone has an idea. You have a quarterly meeting with your team. Uh, someone says, hey, I think we should do A. It's a good idea. A couple of people, a couple of our customers have said that to me that they want that. How do you go create the experiment to find the proof that that's true? Well, uh, as I said before, minimal viable product, you know, how do you – what can you do with that idea to then test it across a group of people? Yeah, and, and not just the same group of people but right out to the fringes, you know, get a really good cross-section mm -hmm. to see whether people would want to use it and then even maybe execute on it in a limited way before you make the big commitment to do it outright. Now, it's obviously going to depend on the idea. Some could be very simple to do. You know, it could be a website or a page or, or whatever. Others would require a huge investment. What I'm saying is don't rush to making a huge pivot until you've tested a number of times whether it's going to be a viable product. Mm. And you don't have to start right away. Like I know a lot of bad decisions, particularly we've made and, and, and many of uh, my friends who are members is that you're like, oh, shit, that's a great idea. Let's just do it right now. And you, next next week you start it. And then in a month you get over it because you're focusing back on the core business and it was just a waste of time and money. So perhaps you definitely need <laughs> you definitely need more experiment. Okay, this is going to be over the quarter. If it's good by next quarter, we'll hit it off hard. And, and, and having that experiment there does prevent you from rushing into something that, that may or may not – that may be your waste. Yeah, let's say you need some discipline. You need an approach because, you know, in, in all the years... A disciplined approach. Yeah, a disciplined yeah, approach. I like that. You know, I, I've had uh, lots of ideas brought to me. I've had lots of ideas myself. 
what I need to do and what I've learned is how to put them through you know, a prioritization matrix. What's the most important? What's the least important? Why is it important? Is, it, is this strategic? Is it more tactical? You know, these are the types of filters that you need to put into the planning so that you can work out how much should I invest in it and invest time and money to actually make it happen. And if it's time, if it's resources, how much is that taking away from the core business and what will that impact be? These are all business decisions. But, uh, you know, the focus on the customer is essential. There's no point building something if no one wants it. But I like the the idea that this, this your scientific background uh, created that disciplined approach to doing new things because you wouldn't do them without that discipline. And, and really any business owner can create a, a disciplined approach to, to new ideas, whether that be deciding in um, a quarterly meeting and, you know, scheduling it, you know, whatever it may be. Um, I think every business should have a disciplined approach, that scientific approach that is this really, uh, really a good idea. And, and there's another reason for this other than just how do I deal with new ideas and that is that the world is constantly changing. You know, we're living through a period of extreme change. Just doing what you always do is eventually going to run out of steam. No one has got a business model today that's going to be relevant in six months, 12 months, 10 years' time. So you need to build into your organisation ways of constantly evolving and innovating and that's another struggle for very big organisations. You know, I think one of the great things about small to medium enterprise is that they can innovate. The trouble is a lot of them don't because I've got a business, it's turning over good money, you know, we're doing well, then something hits them, side, side swipes them and they're knocked over because they've never actually built an innovation culture of having a disciplined approach to how to evolve the business. And, and well, how would you do that? Well, uh, How would you create that culture? So you mentioned a moment ago about quarterly meetings mm-hmm. that you have with your My team. My favourite day of the year. Yeah. Well, we do the same thing, but we do an annual meeting with the global team. We bring everyone to Sydney and then we spend actually not one day, we spend three days. The first day is unpacking where are we now and why are we there? The next day is where do we want to be and how do we get there? And then the third day is then putting in place plans and who's responsible for actually then testing the viability of each of the innovations. Now, we might only pick two or three, but every year we're looking for new things. How do we need to evolve the business? What's changed in the past 12 months? Where have the opportunities arisen? What services do we need to start looking to drop? Because they're just not relevant anymore. I like that, that now, where are we now? Where do we want to be? And then how do we get there? How do we get there? It's yeah. pretty simple. An important one is where are we now is why are we there? Mm-hmm. Because uh, that gets you to challenge all of the thinking around, you know, uh, being locked into a certain view of your business. You know, well, we're here today because this is the way we see the world. So the single biggest uh, obstacle is going to be rethinking the world so that we mm. can define where we want to be. Yeah, how do we change the way we view about whatever? The biggest obstacle to change is often our own view of the world. Yeah, that really is. And I guess that's marketing. It's, it's understanding the view of the world of your customer and then relaying that and providing exactly what they would need. 
Well, the customer is the reason we exist. You know, marketing creates customers. Sales closes the deal, but marketing actually creates the customer. Mm. So you have to be aware of and understand what it is that they value. You can't ask them outright. You know, it's, it's that old saying that if uh, Henry Ford had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses and he came up with a car. But I, and I really agree with that because when I speak to a lot of our customers, uh, we don't call them that, we call them members, but when I speak to our, our members and, um, you know, say, no, it's been fantastic, I've been loving it, blah, 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 and I ask them to rate it and, so, uh, you know, they might say 9 out of 10 and I, I'll say, well, how could we make that a 10? And <laughs> nine times out of 10, they'll say, I don't really know, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, like, yeah. Yeah, I'm happy with everything now as it is. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, a lot of the time you, you can't expect the customer to do your job in regards to figuring out what could make it even better, particularly if your customer is a business owner because they're thinking about their own business. You know, you should be thinking about yours as much as possible and figuring out innovative and new ways to, uh, to make the experience for customers better. Absolutely, yeah, and and so what you need to do is to, if you have your purpose clearly defined in your mind, be observing the behaviours. You know, this is where online behaviour is so important. There's a huge amount of data about where what people are doing online. If you really get into that, you start to see what the behaviours are. Where are people going? What are they interested in? And then you can go to the next step, which is, okay, is there an opportunity for us within our purpose as an organisation to actually enhance that experience? This is where, you know, for instance, sponsorships, you know, um, corporate sponsorships of sporting events or the arts or things like that. It's not about paying money and sticking your logo on it. What you should be thinking about is how can our participation as a sponsor actually enhance the experience of that event Without by bringing our purpose to it, mm, yeah. Well, yeah. For, so for example, for Cub, if we want to sponsor somebody, we now have access to the box. We can take twelve people, twelve of our members there mm. to have a great day together, connect, bond, build strong relationships with other business owners. Boom, it's in line with our connection. Plus, we get to have a good day as a team as well. Yeah, and there's things in sponsorship that are called money can't buy. So you know, there's opportunities in sponsorship to. Uh, take people behind the scenes, you know, and and create experiences that will just blow your your members or your customers away. And these are the things that organisations need to be thinking about from a customer's experience. You know, you sponsor the football, sure, take them to the uh, the stand, uh, put them in a corporate box, give them good food and drink, great catering. Uh, they get to see the game in comfort. But then imagine if you've negotiated as well to take those people behind the scenes into the dressing rooms before the match or after the match or to spend time with their favourite players and get photos and, and all that sort of thing. These are money can't buy opportunities. Then if you start thinking if the bigger you are, how do I then uh, scale that on a global basis or even a national basis? This is where customer-centric thinking applied to every aspect of your business creates opportunities because, you know, if you give someone a money-can't-buy experience, they will be talking about it for life. I always, I also think, you know, an experience is, is, is one thing and it definitely is fantastic as well, but I almost feel like giving someone an emotion 
a feeling, it's almost better. Like I can, I'm trying to relate to stuff we've done, but we've done some pretty cool shit that I thought was, wow, that was really cool. Even I was pretty impressed with what, you know, what we did and the members obviously loved it. But I, when I speak to, to members, they normally will say things like, so we, we, we could have a famous speaker come in for an intimate conversation with them or we could have um, um, fantastic yachting experiences, golfing experiences with famous people and all this type of stuff. But, but I reckon members remember more so feeling a sense of belonging when they come to our just normal events. They, they walk in. The entire, I guess, staffing team comes up to them and says hello and everyone's hugging and they walk in and all the members and everyone's excited to see them. And and I reckon that that sense of that, that experience that we created, or any company obviously can create that experience, it's about finding that core emotion that you want to trigger in your, in your customer. I almost feel like that's more important than a money can't buy experience. I think a money can't buy experience is like, yeah, okay, mad. I, I was If I was nine, now I'm ten. But to get the nine, I want you to make me feel the way I, I was hoping. Yeah. Look, um, you're absolutely right about emotion. You know, all of the scientific studies show that memories laid down with a powerful emotion are the most powerfully recalled. So if you're feeling joy, sadness, whatever the emotion is, the more powerful that is, the more people recall that. What I'm talking about, when I say money can't buy, I mean – creating an experience that no amount of money for the average person could actually buy for them, for themselves. Mm. So, you know, introducing them to their hero from when they were little, uh, uh, giving them an experience like sailing on a uh, Sydney to Hobart yacht, you know, uh, things that for the average person or that person they may not be able to achieve. If you are a, a business and as part of your marketing, you create those emotional experiences that, and especially if they're non-achievable, that makes it incredibly more powerful because not everyone can do it, mm. right? So then the talkability, you know, the fact that they'll be saying, hey, you know, I went to this and this happened because of the, you know, this all company organised Yeah, the talkability it. is a big part of it, a big yeah. part of the a part of the special experience because they're going to go tell everyone about it and everyone's going to know about your company. Well, I've got one uh, that's actually a cub experience and that is, you know, before uh, COVID I travel a lot, mm -hmm. you know, with offices all around the world. And, you know, I know it's sort of offered as part of the membership is reciprocal arrangements mm. into other clubs. And so I remember uh, going to London and Singapore and there's reciprocal clubs in both of those. You yeah. know, there's the Groucho Club and the H Club in London and uh, Straits Clan and uh, 1880 yeah. in Singapore. Now, the thing that was the money can't buy for me is walking into all four of those clubs and being greeted as if I was a member was unbelievable. That's a very good point, actually. Right? That is a very good point. You know, just by uh, beforehand through the club, uh, you know, telling them I was coming and then when I was taking uh, business clients into those clubs in London and they could see me being treated as a member because you've got to remember that in those cities, in Singapore and London, those clubs are really well regarded. So for me, an Australian, to be able to take people into those clubs and being greeted as if I was a member 
was incredibly impressive. And I guess the money can't buy part of it is that, well, no one can be members of all of them because they're all in different countries and in different cities. And so therefore by being a member of CUB, you do obtain that. And that's an extra, it's a, it's, it's the cherry on, on the cake. It's the extra, yeah. it's the extra that, that makes it even more wow. But that's the thing I've been talking yeah, to people I love about, that. Yeah, right? No, I you know, when I say to people, um, yeah, well, I went uh, in London. I had a meeting with such and such, and we went. You know, we met at the Groucho Club, and you know, the restaurant on the first floor. We had lunch there, and they go, "Wow, how did you? Are you a member?" And I go, "No, I'm a member of Cub," and that gives me reciprocal arrangements. Mm. You know, that becomes the money can't buy thing because, as you say, I'm not going to join all these clubs. Mm. But the fact that I'm treated as a member there is like I have joined yeah, all those I agree, clubs. I, I get it, I get it. And you are a bit of an expert in a transition in constant change, uh, as you mentioned before. <laughs> Would you say you're a bit of an expert in transition? Well, on a personal level, absolutely. You know, yeah. it started in childhood going to five different schools because my father kept moving around for work. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, at that time it felt like a hindrance. But in ref- on reflection... My whole life has been a series of transitions. You know, we've covered off. I moved from being a scientist to a creative in agencies to now running a business. Uh, on a personal level, you know, I've moved through relationships and uh, I've been married. To, this is my third time and third time's third a time joy. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what I have learned is that change happens and that if you resist change, it's just going to cause you headaches. So you have to think of transition as a natural part of growing and constantly look for the opportunities that transition creates. In fact, if you embrace transition, if you start to actively look for what are the opportunities, then it becomes exciting. It doesn't be, change doesn't become something to be feared. It becomes something that actually becomes the way you work. Uh, last week, uh, last week's episode of the podcast was with our member Adrian Hondros. Uh, have you met Adrian before? I met him once at the club. Oh, yeah. good. And he was uh, talking about basically what you are saying that he, he said for people to do what you're saying, they need to have a growth mindset. needs to be, well, okay, if some a change is happening, a transition is happening, because shit happens all the time. You haven't got, you know, you can't really control the world, but you can control how you perceive it and how you act towards change. And he said that's called a growth mindset. Every every transition, every change, you get smarter so long as you've got that mindset. You know, you get better. You learn. There's lessons to be to be learned. And I actually did a funny exercise at the end of last year. I wrote down, so I did because it was the end of the decade, why not, 10 years. I wrote down each year from 10 to 20 and I wrote down how I'd like the title of each year, which was basically the big thing that happened mm-hmm. in each year. And I was actually able to do it. I, I used my social media to kind of get my bearings on what was going on. But I've, I figured out the years after the really difficult years were always the best years. And I was always the happiest. I did the most. I achieved the most. It was just the best years. And I thought of it because like, there were three different – it happened three times. After each shit year, there was a great one. I thought that's so weird. Why? I wonder why that's. I wonder why that's the case. Because there were some just normal years that were, you know, one after another. And I figured because I just got stronger as a human in the tough year when there was always a change. It could be a relationship change, a moving change, or whatever the change, 
family issue and drama, whatever it is, business issue. But after that year, there was always a great one. And I could only accredit it towards being a better human being now. Because <laughs> I was like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm stronger because of that. I, I see the world better and I'm more resilient. And so that translated into the next year when nothing bad happened, I was able to excel further. I also think it's, uh, it's got something to do with energy. You know, and that we, we have our energy levels that we put into whatever's important to us. Okay, And when you're confronted with a major change, you find yourself putting so much energy into that, dealing with that, right? And then what you learn as you come out of it is, right, I actually applied myself, I did this, and now I've come through. Suddenly you've got all this energy to do something else. What am I going to do? Either so that I avoid having that same problem again as much as possible or I put it into something else. I'll give you an example. And, and I love the idea of growth mindset because um, one of the things I've been thinking about for over a year is the idea of an industry-based mentoring scheme. And we actually launched it during COVID-19. You, you did a, a group, a marketing group. We've got a marketing you? group yeah. Yeah, at, at Cub. Yeah. But this is a marketing industry mentor scheme. We've uh, licensed one of the platforms out of the US that manages it. Uh, we're doing a pilot at the moment. And people would say to me, oh, well, you'd be a mentor. And I go, well, I'm, going, I'm mentoring three people, but I've also taken on a mentor. And they said, oh, but you're so experienced. And I go, you can always learn. You know? And so my energy has been focusing on getting this going, not just because I want to share my knowledge, but I also want to have a platform I can tap into knowledge as well. I think the thing that drives a growth um, mindset, by the way, is curiosity. If you're curious about the world, you are constantly looking to learn how it works. Yeah, I agree. And I love what you said about the energy level because me, Laura and Alice from Cub were having uh, and Anthony had uh, lunch the other day and I was saying that when COVID happened, I felt like I put just so much of my energy into the business, which I, I probably wouldn't have had, wouldn't have done otherwise. And it was kind of like I wasn't trying that hard, and then I was forced to try really hard. And because I did, re I put so much of my energy into it, the business got just so much better after. And now I'm back chilling again, <laughs> but but the business is just so much better. And mm. it was because I had a reason to really kick in a gear. And I reckon that so long as you have that energy, right, that ability to just dump all your energy into it and you also have that growth mindset, any real difficult or bad situation can become a really good one. And, and the other thing is because you identified going back over a decade, peaks and troughs, mm. you know, issues bounce back, issues bounce back. The other thing is if you embrace the idea of transitioning, it could also be said innovation, and you build it into part of your everyday life. There will still be troughs where you're dealing with more external, but in the positive times you actually put the energy into driving constant innovation, constant mm. evolution, constant change. Because, you know, people often misquote Charles Darwin when he talked about survival of the fittest, he actually meant survival of the most adaptable. The organisms that survive are the ones that can adapt to change. 
as an organisation, as a human being, we need to remember that. That as soon as we lock ourselves into the wheel ruts, all we'll ever do is follow where everyone else has gone. If we're willing to constantly evolve and constantly challenge our thinking and have a disciplined process for moving that forward, then we'll be able to innovate and take advantage rather than be held the victim of change that we can't control. Mm. I had a conversation on that topic with Brett Kelly from Kelly and Partners, the listed accounting firm. And real, real, obviously a genius guy, a super successful guy, and he was, he was, ex- he was basically explaining to me that survival is the name of the game. It's how long you survive in business, how long you last. And and I can't remember exactly what he told me, but he said that it's so. If you look at the rich list from the past thirty years, the people that were on it, I'm making up the number thirty, but he was he gave me a time frame. The pe- the people that were on it thirty years ago, that are still on it. They all still own their companies. Their companies are all still there. Mm. Whereas people that dropped off either sold the business or the business obviously went down, they didn't change and adapt and died. And he was basically just saying that that having a, a somewhat defensive strategy in that survival is the, is the aim of the game. As the longer your business lasts, the, the better it is how you should be um, approaching it. And you also see that in the data too because – you know, your odds of the business doing really well and surviving longer go up dramatically with every year your business survives. You know, a lot, a higher percentage of the businesses die in the first three years than the ones that go after five and then after 10 and then after 15. So a lot of it should be what you're saying. It's survival of the most adaptable. And you think about the period we're living in, you know, technology is driving change. Human beings largely haven't changed in 100,000 years. Mm. We still have the same needs, wants and desires. But the way we express that has changed so much. You know, the other, and and I can't remember the numbers, but Fortune 500 in 1955, there's like a tiny number of companies that still exist today. Mm. So that's just over half a century. Fortune 500 companies that in 1955 you would have said will be here forever are no longer here. And largely that's driven by technology and the failure to embrace the opportunities and the change that comes along. Mm. You know, the number of times in business you hear people, oh, yeah, look, it's just a fad. We're not going to, you know, why should I jump on the bandwagon? I think even Bill Gates said 64KB was the largest processor or memory that you'd need in a computer. You know, like we get caught out by locking ourselves into a particular point in time. And that really survival is about constantly looking for what are the opportunities. Yeah. What, it's, yeah, that survival to me is, is a, about looking for the, the change. Yeah. Well, isn't that entrepreneurialism? It you is. Know, we talk about it entrepreneurs is. all the time, but all entrepreneurs yeah. are people in that chose a business focus to look for what's things are changing, where's the opportunity? Where's the next opportunity? What are the opportunities here to create value so I can commercialise it and make money? But people hate change, naturally. Of course, because there's the risk of losing what I already have. And the more you have at risk, the more you'll often hate change. But that's one of the things that you have to overcome is realising everything you have is transient anyway. It's kind of like why the bigger companies are less likely to pivot or to innovate because eh, we're already big, we're already good, We we don't want to fuck up what we've already got. Whereas the small ones will be like, nah, let's do this, let's take a big risk because they really haven't, they've got less to lose. Yeah. 
That's right. And yet the big companies have so much in their favour in the way of resourcing. You know, they have phenomenal resources. If they even took a fraction of those resources and put it into innovation, then they would absolutely thrive. And it's also kind of like you just have to change your viewpoint on them. It's not that if I embrace the change, I'm, I'm risking my business. It's almost like if you don't embrace the change, then you're risking your business. So it's just changing that, that it's, mindset. It's a perspective. And really it's to do not even with business. It's just with, for people in life. It's just a good life lesson. Well, it's one of the good things about business is it's almost life heightened mm. because there's so much more miserable things in business such as profitability, you know, uh, uh, client uh, satisfaction. There's so many things we can measure that we don't measure in our personal lives. And you're watching them nonstop. Yeah, I agree with exactly. that. Exactly. Um, and how about before we wrap up, you've got some uh, key lessons that I was excited for you to share. <laughs> Just, you know, some of the biggest lessons you go in, in business. Um, and then I know that uh, you had a couple of book recommendations, which I was really interested in um, hearing about and, and why you liked them. But what, what, let's start with your lessons. Well, look, the, uh, the first one is, and it's a bit out of my, you know, because of my science background, mm -hmm. and that is, uh, it's actually a, a quote, I think, which is uh, opinions are like arseholes. Everyone has one. And especially in marketing, everyone seems to have an opinion about marketing. But the fact is that unless you've got some data or evidence, you know, tangible evidence to prove it, you're just another arsehole with an opinion. Yeah. And, um, and that's because, you know, day to day I'm surrounded by people that tell me, you know, oh, you have to do it this way, you have to do it this way. I don't have to do anything. Show me a uh, substantiate why. What's the opportunity? What's the cost? What's the threats? And then let me uh, decide whether you've proven to me why I should make that change. Yeah, but you decide your own based on your analysis, uh, analysis of, yeah. of the reality. Rather than just take a whole lot of opinions. Having said that, I'll listen to a whole lot of opinions but I'll weight it on the basis of the evidence that comes with the opinion. And But also your what I like about that is it's your analysis of the evidence. Just because... You know, if you have there's evidence and we're both sharing it, um, I may I may um, take something different from the from the I guess the data or the thing, and that's fine. You know, if I've if I've taken something different than you have, it's completely fine. That's what makes our brains different. That's why we're in different businesses. Um, yeah, and the next one was uh, actually from a quote that people often say was Albert Einstein, but there's a few different people. And insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different uh, result. And, uh, you know, what I see in that is if something's not working in my business, then I just change the way we're doing it. You know, I'll do a different experiment. If something doesn't work, then it's time to let it go or, to, or do something different. And yet I see time and time again people doing the same thing over and over again. You know, one of the things is uh, marketers that change their agency all the time expecting a different outcome. Well, fundamentally, you can have any number of suppliers, but if you're still having the same problem, perhaps it's actually being driven by you and you need to do something differently. So that's, uh, that's a big one for me. Completely agree. And what about a couple of books you've books you've, you've enjoyed that you, th you would say I must that for myself and the listeners to read? Okay, um, the first one, and this was a big change for me when I started the business, is called Maverick 
by Ricardo Semler. And he inherited, uh, 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 from South America, he inherited his father's shipbuilding business at a time that it was going bankrupt and he was desperately ran around trying to get more sales but then he had a heart attack in Boston and completely rethought the way he should be running his business and that is treat your employees like grown-ups rather than children because he realised that most businesses treat their, their employees as children and tell them what to do. So that was pivotal for me. Um, the other big one for me was uh, the e-myth by uh, mm-hmm. Goober. And uh, the reason for that is I see too many small businesses that someone's a really good technician, they do something really well and they'll start a business but they forget that business requires three things, the entrepreneur, the manager and the technician. So if you're really good at something, you've only got one part of those three. You actually need to be also entrepreneurial. How am I going to grow the business? A manager, how do I manage it? so that we know exactly what's happening. So if you want a business to just employ you as a technician, don't do it. And that fundamentally changed my way of viewing my own business so that I could build the right group of people and the processes so that I could focus on my strengths and I could employ or, or bring in the people that would do the other two. Sorry, so what you're saying is that when you're when you're bringing someone in, you're aware this is a technician. They're an expert in doing this task and that's what they're going to do here in this That's business. right. I mean, I, I quickly identified that I'm not a manager. I don't like bookkeeping. Yeah, me I don't. <laughs> so the, one of the first people I hired was a finance person. Yeah. You know, I, and when I hire people to be technicians, to be consultants, I look for their skill sets there. And entrepreneurs are... You know, I'm the main entrepreneur but I also look for people, especially in sales, that will bring an entrepreneurial spirit because mm-hmm. I think entre- uh, sales is all about being an entrepreneur. Yeah, I relate to that a lot. Isn't it funny though why the entrepreneur always sucks at management? I mean I definitely suck at it and I know a lot of entre- very entrepreneurial people who that's just not their – it's not their preferred task or yeah, you know. I'm- it's because to be a really good entrepreneur, you need a big vision. You need to be able to step back and to get dragged into the detail. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I, 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 what I've learned to appreciate is the outputs of the management, you know, to get my reports, to get my dashboards, to look at them because otherwise I'd be flying a plane without knowing how much fuel or where I was going or what speed I was doing or anything. Mm. But that's what management provides is clarity. The, the clarity, you know, where are we going, how well are we doing, are we going to be able to make it, do I have to change my priorities? All of those things come from having great management team working with you to help you achieve that. Yeah, fully agree. And um, and what about Cub? What was it that – why was it that you joined Cub? What was the main reason you wanted to join in the first place? Uh, belonging, mm-hmm. you know, to belong to a group of people – that had similar and yet different uh, perspectives. And that's one of the things I really enjoy about Cub is the diversity. Diversity of businesses, diversity of people, diversity of opinions. It's a really good environment to really you know, learn in and just by listening sometimes or asking questions. But it's also incredibly social as well. Thank you so much. And so you've obviously enjoyed it thus far. I've paid my fees for the next 12 months. Love it. Awesome. 
Darren Woolley, thank you so much for coming onto onto the show. Thank you for being a fantastic member of our incredible community. Thank you for sharing all of your knowledge and for your time. And if anyone wants to find Trinity P3, what's the website? Uh, Trinity P3, letter P number three, dot com. Amazing. And if any of the members want to reach out to you, they can reach out to your membership manager and they'll connect you directly. Otherwise, they can find you on LinkedIn, I'm sure. Absolutely. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you, sir. And thank you to all the listeners. I hope you enjoyed the show.